Yeah, we really, it's amazing. We have a, a, a demographic unlike anything else. People of all ages really love Guar. And I think it's because Guar's always remained current, always remained awesome. You know, we're always very heavy. We're always very uh, political. Um, we're always very funny. We don't take ourselves too seriously, but anyone who sees our show knows we take it very seriously because it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to make this happen. I don't think anybody who sees what Guar does could deny to themselves that we are probably some of the most motivated, motivated artists out there. I mean, obviously we're not doing it for the money. Hello Monster Island Resorters, and thank you for returning once again to the Monster Island Resort, your online radio show that goes bump in the night. My name is Miguel Rodriguez, and I like to discuss horror in history, art, literature, film, and beyond. A couple of times in the past, I have used this show whenever I felt that the passing of a celebrity or a friend has affected me in such a way that I am compelled to write something or say something and make those feelings public. Sometimes it's a little personal, but I'm compelled to do it nonetheless and feel like I don't have much choice in the matter. Regarding celebrity deaths, there are a couple of things that make a celebrity death more acutely felt by their fans. One way is if a celebrity had greatly influenced or inspired a person while they were in those formative years. Another way is when a person has had the opportunity to meet and get to know in some capacity that celebrity in real life, it can have an effect of simultaneously smashing the mystique of fame while increasing the affections for that celebrity. With my own experiences with Guar frontman Dave Brocky, both criteria are met. Now I learn that yesterday, on Sunday, March the 23rd, 2014, Dave Brocky was found dead in his home in Richmond, Virginia. Brocky is better known to the world as the infamous frontman, or front alien overlord, Odorus Urungus. Odorus Urungus was a sadistic monster from the planet Skomdogia, whose only joys in life came from lewd sex acts, smoking gigantic rocks of crack, and causing inordinate amounts of gratuitous violence. The story of Odorus Urungus and his motley crew of alien band members, as well as their galactic slaves, has been told in a variety of comic books and indie movies, but mainly through the songs of their punk metal band, Guar which, in the late 80s, released their first album entitled Hello. Out of the people who even know who Guar is, there are probably thousands who can't stand them for every one person who loves them. I'm sure the sadness I feel over this particular celebrity death will be perplexing to many people, but for those of you who have known me for a long time, it will make perfect sense. I have decided the best way to deal with the passing of Dave Brocky is to try and look back and remember some of my most concrete 
memories of him and his maligned band. I give to you some significant facts about my personal relationship with Guar. 1. I discovered Guar on a Boy Scout camping trip. The first time I heard of Guar, I was on a camping trip with Boy Scouts. I wasn't even a real Boy Scout. My father was working with a group and thought I should try to join them. I was in middle school at the time, and I didn't have many friends, or really any at all. I don't remember much about that trip, but I do remember it being time for sleep when two other boys were huddled around a cassette Walkman, sharing a pair of headphones, and listening intently while giggling themselves silly. After noticing my curiosity, they decided to let me listen, and for the first time, I heard the voice of Guar manager Sleazy P. Martini murdering game show contestants on a song called Slaughterama. How do you hide money from a hippie? Put it under the soap! I'm sorry, but that answer wasn't in time. You're going to have to put your mouth on this. Oh, I blew your head clean off! Good thing I was such an expert shot with the National Guard back in Kent State. I'm back for that day. There's nothing like hippie, honey. My dad always used to take me along with Lee Harvey Oswald. It was on a tape that had just come out that week. The year was 1990. The album was called Scumdogs of the Universe. I had never heard anything like it, and when I looked at the cover, I had never seen anything like it either. Monsters stood posing on Antarctic ice floes. Dave Brockie's odorous looks his most hostile in this photograph. In fact, all of them looked pretty nasty. This was probably the most straightforward horror than some of their other depictions. The cover's liner notes were all scribbled over by a fictional censor named Edna P. Granbo, and my seventh grade self felt both fascinated by it, but also a little fearful. It was like a horror movie in band form, and other similar acts like Alice Cooper or Kiss didn't even come close to how visceral that experience was with Scum Dogs of the Universe. The chastising handwritten notes of Edna P. Granbo felt like they could have been written by any teacher, church member, or parent I had come in contact with. They were condemning the sex and violence described in every lyric. There was one particular bit that stuck with me, and that was from the written lyrics to the song The Salamanizer, where it says, Crushed in the pit, nailed to the stage, I only suck the souls that are underage. To which Granbo expresses distress at Guar's brazen shamelessness at revealing their true purpose. It was thrilling, and it made me afraid to see them on stage, but at the same time, I really wanted to. Which brings me to my next memory. 2. The first time I saw Guar, they were in human disguise. My first opportunity to see Guar didn't present itself until two years later, when I was a freshman in high school. It was in this time that I finally met some friends who would last a lifetime, and these were friendships that started because of the fascination with Guar. It began in Spanish class, which I shared with a unique character named Christopher Andrew Thacker, 
Somehow we discovered that we had similar interests, but the most core of these was a mutual fascination with Guar. At the time, it seemed like we were the only ones in the world who knew who Guar was, so it felt almost like a secret club. Based on my love of Guar, Chris introduced me to his childhood friend, Adam Tifano, and they asked me if I wanted to see Rog. I had no idea what they were talking about, but I said yes. Rog, as it turns out, was Guar spelled backwards. The show was described as Guar in Human Disguise. The band would play their set without any frills or costumes. It was a weird first-time Guar experience, but it was pivotal for many reasons. First of all, it was my first independent punk hardcore show. The venue was a tiny hovel in Baltimore, Maryland called The Rage. They played with a hardcore band called Next Step Up, whose record Heavy I bought at that show and probably helped to initiate my own experiences in the punk hardcore scene. When Rog took the stage, I was all the way up front, and those lyrics I remember came back to me. Crushed in the pit, nailed to the stage, I only suck the souls that are underage. It would be my first experience with the pit, especially in such a tiny space. Because they were out of costume, the energy of Dave Brocky's performance was off the charts, normally confined to his complex odorous Yurungus costume, as I would later discover. The freedom of movement he enjoyed while playing in human disguise, as they put it, had him jumping and diving all over the place, into the crowd, into other band members, bouncing off the walls. At one point, he ended up hitting his head and broke the skin, but kept playing all the same. My friend Cameron Trainer got some of that blood on a napkin or a piece of tissue or paper or something, and I remember he kept it for a while, bragging that he had Dave Brocky's odorous blood. Yeah, it's pretty gross, I know, but we were just in high school. This show was the year that their third album, America Must Be Destroyed, came out. An album that is at the center of another significant period of my life. 3. America Must Be Destroyed gets played in church class. I was brought up Catholic by a father who has a long background in the Catholic Church. My own views of religion were conflicted by the time I hit the sixth grade, and I was more or less agnostic by the end of middle school. When high school rolled around, I felt secure in my atheism, but completely insecure about revealing this to my father. I remember very clearly the uncomfortable silence or monosyllabic grunts I would use to answer his questions about my getting confirmed in the religion. In the effort to maintain peace, I did attend some classes that were part of our church. This was all part of the process toward getting confirmed, I suppose, and I really hated those classes, and I really disliked the teacher at them. I remember his first name was Tony, but my brain has since eradicated his last name from my memory. I don't remember how many of these classes I endured, but I do remember the last one. It was all about making the, in quotes, right choices when it came to pop culture, and especially music. At the time, I walked to and from school, as well as to and from these classes, and of course, I would take with me on my walks my Walkman so I could listen to some music. On the particular occasion of this final class, I had with me Guar's America Must Be Destroyed to accompany me there and back. Unfortunately, at some point during this class, 
after teacher Tony praised the Guns N' Roses song Sweet Child of Mine as being a brilliant work of art, he took notice of the fact that I had a Walkman among my belongings and asked me to bring it to him. With horror, I watched as he removed my cassette of America Must Be Destroyed from my own personal player and inserted it into the boombox he had sitting in the middle of the class. This was in the summer of 1993, and I had just ended my freshman year of high school, but I was still finding my own identity as a person and hurtling headlong into the years of teen angst. To suddenly be put on the spot like this was mortifying. After cycling through some of the album in front of everyone, the teacher took this opportunity, with, I observed, particular relish, to shame me for my depraved music choices, to chastise me and berate me for listening to such terrible music with such terrible lyrics. It was a terrible experience, but it was one that had a profound effect on me. It solidified my decision against getting confirmed in the Catholic religion, and I refused any more of those classes. The album America Must Be Destroyed, whose story has a group of censors called the Morality Squad as the antagonists, was an especially appropriate album to have as the catalyst of this decision. Despite my fear, I did let my father know that I would not be getting confirmed, and to my absolute shock, he offered no anger, no offense, no rebuttal. He let the decision be mine. It still surprises me to this day, but my respect for him was dramatically increased on that day. It is interesting to think that this important moment stemmed from my newfound conviction, which was solidified by a Guar record of all things. But there it is. Next, Guar helped me through another celebrity passing. Bruce Lee was a huge part of my growing up. Kung Fu Theater was a regular weekend part of Baltimore Channel 54, and the Bruce Lee films were always something that my brothers and I waited for and they were films that we watched whenever we visited our aunts and uncles in Texas. When Bruce Lee's son Brandon Lee appeared, particularly in the film Rapid Fire, it seemed like he would be another great martial arts star carrying on the name of his father. To make things better, he was going to be the star in the movie adaptation of a comic book superhero, The Crow. This was very exciting to me at the time as a comic fan, and also as a budding Brandon Lee fan. Of course, we all know the tragedy of Brandon Lee getting fatally shot on the set of Making the Crow. What made that even worse for me is that it happened on my 15th birthday. Brandon Lee was declared dead on March 31, 1993. When they went ahead with finishing the film anyway, my friends and I committed to seeing it opening night, which was May of 1994. I remember our terror that it wouldn't be any good, that the film that killed Brandon Lee would be a waste. 
It was the very conversation we were having in line at the Columbia Palace Nine, the theater where we stood for tickets. Then it happened. The person standing in line directly before us bought the last ticket for the last screening for the night. We were all pretty angry, and I remember that in particular Adam was furious. In our defeated moods, we walked up the hill to a Burger King that sat across from the Columbia Palace Nine. As we sat, forlornly munching our crappy fast food, some kids, much younger even than we were, started talking to us. I fail to remember exactly how we got onto the subject of guar, perhaps a t-shirt one of us was wearing, maybe a t-shirt one of the kids was wearing. But those little guys asked us if we were going to the show that was going to happen in a month's time. All of our ears perked up, our moods suddenly changed. We couldn't believe that there was a guar show about to happen that these kids would know about when we didn't. So as a group, we abandoned our food and ran full tilt back down the hill toward the Columbia Palace Nine, where a payphone stood out front. We dialed the number for Ticketmaster and listened to the recording. As we listened, it was confirmed that Guar was coming to Baltimore in June of 1994. In my life, I have seen Guar over 30 times. But the show that year, in June of 1994, was the most spectacular I ever remember seeing. More than any of the other tours, which were concerts with lots of costumes and blood, this one seemed to focus more on trying to deliver almost a metal musical with longer pieces of dialogue and story and stage antics. It was part of the tour for the album called This Toilet Earth, which was about an alien named Skullhead Face who came to Earth disguised as a media mogul that homogenizes artists for general consumption, a process that robs them of their artistic essence, which Skullhead Face then shoots up like a drug. Who do you think you're up against? Some chaotic stupidity? I'll show you conflict management by my extensive super curiosity. The costumes during this concert were bigger, more intense, more elaborate. There was probably more money after the success of Scumdogs of the Universe and America Must Be Destroyed. I remember the ultimate show-stopping monster came in the form of Skullhead Face's flesh column, which had to be operated by four or five people. I remember that show so well, and I really think they never reclaimed the creativity of that particular storyline and performance. For me, it is the pinnacle of their career. After this Toilet Earth, I rather enjoyed Ragnarok and Carnival of Chaos. Both albums had songs that were playful and attempted some different things. But I did feel a little disappointed by how much the next album, We Kill Everything, felt rather phoned in. After that album, Guar has seemed to have gone toward being a more straightforward kind of metal band without as much thought put into the rock opera style of storylines as in the earlier albums. They left me feeling a bit cold, and I haven't purchased a Guar album since We Kill Everything. Conclusion Dave Brocky, The Man I first met Dave Brocky when I was living in Richmond, Virginia, back around 2001 or 2002. I have talked to him several times since then, sometimes on the internet, 
mostly whenever I have seen him in odorous costume at conventions. What always struck me about talking to him on a personal level is the feeling of confirmation of my suspicions that there was something more than meets the eye with Guar. Brocky had a devious sense of humor. He loved to shock people, and he understood satire, even if that satire was really hard to see under some of the extreme crassness of Guar. The conversation with Brocky that I will always take to heart came from him sharing some of his personal experiences with me. He had gone to art school, but felt angered by the attitude of the professors, who would always counter his loves with words like, comics aren't art, or horror isn't art, or similar assertions that he felt in his heart weren't true, assertions that I feel are not true. The true pretensions of those professors were revealed when those same people would act all buddy-buddy with him following Guar's modest success. That kind of insincerity is a huge part of what Guar was trying to rake over the coals. I believe it is my lot in life to feel absolute love for art that the majority of the general population feels absolute contempt for. When the oppression of that phenomenon gets difficult for me to deal with, I will try to remember Brocky's feelings about it. He created art that most people lift their noses at, but for a long time he did so with sincerity and with conviction, two things that I felt even as a young adolescent laying in a tent on a Boy Scout trip in middle school. Yes, Dave, you were an artist, and I will miss having you in this world. In the time that it took me to record this episode, my friend Jeff Mosier drew a really brilliant picture in dedication of Dave Brocky, a.k.a. Odorus Urungus, that I will have up on the website at www.monsterislandresort.org. If you have any memories of Guar or of Odorus or of Dave Brocky himself that you'd like to share, send them over to me on Facebook at facebook.com slash monsterislandresort or on Twitter. My Twitter name is at monsterresort or you can email me at miguel at hifilmfest.com. I hope you enjoyed this little walk down memory lane and tribute to Dave Brocky of Guar. And until next time, stay scared. The interview clip from the beginning of this episode is taken from a 2008 interview done by Robert Mitchell, which you can see the entire interview of over at his YouTube channel with Sheely Bober. The YouTube channel is youtube.com slash user slash Sheely, S-H-E-L-E-I-G-H, at You Bring a Horse for Me Productions.